This is episode number 26 of the Bearded Marketers podcast, the only internet marketing podcast that matters. You can catch new episodes every Monday morning at thebeardedmarketers.com. And of course, you can find us on iTunes. We've got a good lineup of things to talk about tonight. Oh, as always. Absolutely. But before we get into that, we like to talk about what we're drinking. Tonight, I'm doing a dark and stormy. What are oh, you doing? Mixing it up. I am doing a margarita. Really? I was trying to hold on to summer as long as possible, even though I don't really <laughs> like the heat. I like the idea of summer. So remove the temperature I'm all down for. I like the idea after about a month, I'm kind of over it too. We'll tweet out our recipes as we sort of always say we're going to do and never do, but uh, we'll try to stick to it this time. All right, so let's get into it. Tonight, we're going to be talking about... Stop with the stock photos. Come on, people. It's, this yeah. is time for an intervention. Common landing page mistakes. We have a list, a rant list, if you will. We're going to share them with you, and I think that you'll agree, or you actually might be an offender, and this is <laughs> this may be your wake-up call. Website features on mobile and making sure key website features are actually available on mobile. So that's kind of a homework assignment. And then lastly, annoying banner location study that Rob's going to clue us in on. And maybe some ideas to think about when you're doing your placements or just general good marketing tips on when you're constructing your campaigns. So first things first, stock photos. So this week I read a good article from our friend Tim Ash. And basically the premise of the article was kind of coming down on stock photos. Uh, if you don't know what stock photos are, you've probably seen one million of them in your time on the internet. But it's essentially just buying photos at places like iStockphoto, sell for businesses to essentially get professional looking photography when they don't have the assets for it. The problem being that a lot of people feel like because they have access to these accounts, or these resources that makes them a web designer, or they can usurp terrible page design or bad copy with stock images. You know, another thing that, you know, Tim talks about in this article is, you know, not also having continuity. So I find this a lot on sites too. You know, when they use stock photos, the style is like all over the place. You know, sometimes they'll use very realistic looking ones. Other times they're very kind of cartoonish or other times they're very, they have the classic, you know, contact us lady with the headpiece <laughs> that everyone has. Uh, and it really, for people that start to notice these things, I don't think it would cause me to like leave a site, but it definitely doesn't seem like you put a lot of effort in it, at least to me. I mean, I'm, I'm in the industry, so I kind of pick up on these things but i think now that everyone does so much on the internet it's something that you notice right I, I think i'm sort of conflicted i was actually building a landing page earlier today and was definitely on iStock photo trying to find some stock photos i think for a lot of companies it's sort of what you have to do but i think there are ways you can do it better than how a lot of people do so for example let's say i'm looking up a photo for customer service don't use the classic one that everybody has seen, you know, the blonde girl with the headset on. You can actually sort by downloads, get some rarer ones that look more yeah. realistic. Yeah, a good I think that's a big thing is not necessarily the fact that it's a stock photo, right? It's the fact that it doesn't look real or genuine or yeah, I recognize it for some, from somewhere else. I think that's the main issue with those things because, like I said, I use stock photos for just about everything I do. I mean, I don't bust up my camera and... <laughs> 
um, take live photos for things. So a lot of people forget about you're obviously looking at stock photos, so you might not have the design resources, but a lot of stock photos, the way they're shot can also be manipulated. Mm -hmm. So it might be worth your time if you like a stock photo style or one fits your brand well, you know, maybe jazz it up a bit. Maybe put a different background behind the person or if it's shot on like a white screen or something like that. Take some time, make some small tweaks and make it your own. You you bought the image, so own it and make it a little bit more genuine. Yeah, put a bird on it. Put Lanyo <laughs> put a bird on for it. you. Um, <laughs> no, I agree. I, oftentimes when I do look for stock photos, I look for ones that are called isolated. So mm -hmm. there's a white background and I can take off whatever the element is and, and put it on something else. Like you said, jazz it up a little bit. Put a bird on it. Right. You know, the last point that I wanted to talk about in this article, which I think is a decent one, he makes a point at the end to not forget that your customers and your employees are good assets as well uh, instead of stock photos. Uh, and what he means by that is there is a strong trend in the industry for some sites to use very personal looking images. In particular, he points to Basecamp as a good example and having real customer pictures on their landing page, really large photos of these actual users. Actually, just recently, Google Analytics just launched a new login page. It's not too good, but they're featuring a very large picture of one of their power users in a testimonial. And the point being that instead of potentially going out to some of these stock photo places, potentially using your employees to tell a story or some of your customers might be a powerful driver for some of that photo lift that can bring to a page. But a negative side of that I've seen a lot in some of the sites, and we were actually noticing that this week, is a lot of people are crutching on these really large images of customers and employees to really, it almost seems like the novelty of having big images, but also just kind of to fill space. Yeah. It's almost like I don't have a lot to say here, so let's just throw up a big image. Number one, it doesn't do a lot for the page. Number two, it can kind of crowd out your message of what you're trying to convey. I think we were looking at... Infusionsoft's landing page for their CRM product. Right. And they rely really heavily on this very nice image of some business owners quickly arriving at the page looking for a CRM. I can't really tell what they do or what they're really offering me. And they have this really large image and it looks very attractive. But the actual selling points of their product are really low on the page and really vague. So I would say that using some of these tactics like your employees or customers, use those. They, they can be great, but don't lean and crutch on them to have poor performing pages because an image isn't going to pull up an entire page where it's not really selling anything worth value. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, like you mentioned, we were looking at the Infusionsoft website, which we're going to have a video walkthrough tune-up of mm, up on the week. website yeah. soon. So head to thebeardedmarketers.com slash tune-ups and you can look at some of the other ones we've done in the past. But specifically on that one, I remember talking about this issue, about having large picture of a customer. And I think you see it on a lot of big brands. I think it works for some of those at least in terms of, you know, they don't really need anything on their homepage. You know what Google Analytics is. Sure. You know, you're just, you're going to Google Analytics homepage just to hit that login button, right? So it doesn't really matter much what's there. I mean, it doesn't hurt them at least. I still don't agree with the practice. I actually don't like it. <laughs> I see it on Basecamp every time I go there. And I really, you know, no offense to whoever that is, if they're listening right now, but I really don't like that image. It bugs mm -hmm. me. Um, Might be a nice person. But. Right, right, exactly. Well, so I think it works for brands. It's like, okay, I know who this is. You know, it's not a landing page. It's a login page. Uh, people are going there all the time. They're just reading testimonials. They don't even really care what's on there. I think for a landing page, though, 
you're not telling me anything. You just have this large picture of someone's kind of weird. Because when you see a large picture of just about anyone, they kind of look a little weird. And then you have a testimonial and just oftentimes a button. That's a waste of space. It can be a nice prop up on the page. Maybe something to kind of drive a point home. But a lot we see a lot of companies that that's what they're leading with. That doesn't really tell me what I need to know. Yeah. And I think, you know, the order of operations on that page gets a little janky. So when you're thinking about stock photos, first assess, number one, am I just using this to fill space? Because if that's the case, don't do it. Number one, come up with a better idea. Number two, if you're going to go with stock photos, own it, make it unique, make it memorable. And like Rob said, why don't you sort for number of downloads, go for something that not a lot of people are downloading out there, or there are a few instances of, because you don't want to have the same image that everyone else has. Again, you're trying to build a brand, you're trying to build a unique experience. So do that. And then lastly, think about your customers and your employees as sources for images, but don't rely solely on those to pull up an entire page like some companies do. They can be great pieces to a page to add to the story, to drive a point home, but that's not necessarily something you want to lead with on a page because it can really distract away from your products, especially if the person's weird looking like Rob said. So <laughs> Rob said that. <laughs> All right. Hashtag so, mean Rob. <laughs> So All right. Anyways. All right. Moving on to which I guess we sort of bled into um, mm-hmm. talking about pages, um, talking about images on pages, sort of one of my common mistakes that I find a lot of times on landing pages. So let's talk about what are some of the other common mistakes that we find on landing pages. You know, landing pages, they're hot right now. Mm-hmm. They're hot. Everyone has them. If you don't or you don't know what I'm talking about right now, where are you? <laughs> <laughs> this is 2000 and what year is it? Wait, 13? Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, we get we get harsh on people, but if they're fresh out of college or whatnot. They don't teach this kind of stuff. I mean, if you're I, in the industry, then yes, but... Okay, so you're in the industry. You're Well, you're listening to our podcast. So you're obviously cool. So you obviously know what you're doing. So you know about landing pages. All right, right, so let's get into some of the common mistakes that people make on landing pages. You know, again, Corey and I, we do these tune-ups a lot, and we run through websites, and we sort of run across a lot of the same things we mention a lot because I think what actually happens is a lot of people copy what a lot of other people Mm -hmm. are doing on landing pages. So this problem just ends up persisting through an entire industry because everyone's copying competitors. Yeah, we assume that they do it better. Exactly. Or I'm just lazy. Let's just start (laughs) start from where they are right now and we'll go from there. All right. So the first thing, and this is the primary thing that we notice whenever we look at a landing page is continuity. Every time we click on a paid search ad, The messaging that's in that ad needs to be the primary messaging on that landing page. And I think if you look through some of the tune-ups on our site, it's it's the first thing we always mention. So if I'm clicking an ad that tells me 20% discount on your fancy white shoes and you hit the landing page and now you're talking about top selling black shoes... You've lost me. I don't I don't even know what I'm talking about. I got sold on I wanted white shoes. I, yeah, exactly. I got sold on this percentage discount on white shoes and now you've lost me. You're talking about something else. Same category, right? Sure. Same sort of thing. Yeah. It's it's sort of relevant. But it usually goes back to laziness though, too. Right. You know, you've we missed write me. standardized ads and we don't follow up on the process. I think a good example was that Geico landing page we looked at. In particular, not only in their ad, did they specifically mention Florida because we were looking for car insurance in Florida? So their ad was, you know, they had written out specific ads enough to know that we were in Florida. They were also very specific on the amount of savings that you could achieve through Geico. You get to the landing page, number one, no mention of Florida anywhere. Not only no mention in the text, no images of Florida, 
nothing. No tie-in with the amount of savings. So they mentioned savings, I think, one time on the whole page. And it wasn't even tied into the specific amount, which I think was like four or $500, a sizable amount that you would want to mention on a landing page to drive that point home. Right. Nope, not mentioned anywhere. And the biggest element on the page altogether was the lizard, which, again, I understand that we're trying to brand a company but like you said, the continuity is such a big thing that so many people miss out on. And if you think about it just from a psychology standpoint, there is something in that email, that ad, whatever drove me to the website triggered something into me to right. want to actually go and visit your site. So it makes sense that we understand our channels, how people are coming to our site, and we make sure that, that message is echoed throughout the process because that's what brought me here. And if it's not then my likelihood of converting or staying around just really drops exponentially. So continuity is the number one thing that we could drive home to anyone, which would really put more dollars in the penny bank. It would be continuity. Yeah, absolutely. The second thing that I oftentimes see on landing pages is not having a clear call to action. Now, when I say call to action, I think a lot of people immediately think, okay, button, link, Orange. you know, whatever it is, right? Um, that says get your whatever. And that's sort of the normal landing page mantra that's taught in all these a b testing webinars and things like that i don't necessarily just mean that specifically so while yes that is important i need to be able to at least find the button that you want me to click on mm -hmm. find the, the whatever action it is you want me to take it goes beyond that too i mean so let's say i have a complex sale and i'm not i'm not necessarily trying to get you to click a link immediately my initial call to action is like to get you to read that headline and click play on my video that's trying to get you to sell something um, it's not necessarily a button. It's messaging like path to get so people. You're saying to like make almost like a visual hierarchy. It's like controlling people's eyes on a page. Yes, it's that combined with a call to action. So mm -hmm. that, I guess that's two elements in one. Ooh, that was a freebie. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, I think a lot of people don't really assess their pages from a. What, what do my eyes do when I arrive here? Right. And is there kind of a set path that I'm leading you down? Uh, and, I, and I think a lot of people get greedy with their color schemes and just their designs in general. And you arrive at some of these websites and there's so many things yelling for your attention, whether that's, you know, animation, colors, how big fonts are, things like that. You really don't know where to start and you're easily distracted. You know, you're reading down this page and all of a sudden there's this big insert that comes in with that's 30 times the font size of everything else. Now I'm distracted. I'm looking over here. And I think a lot of people just lack the architecture of a page to lead you down the process that I want to make sure that I'm hitting all my points that I want, making that sale for whatever it might be, whether that's playing a video, giving me your dollars by buying a product, converting as a lead. People don't really construct the page to really tell the story in order in a, in a logical fashion. So, right. I think, clear process. you know, not only just having a clear call to action as well, but I think focusing on one at a time, I think is a, is a huge principle that oftentimes is, is overlooked on landing pages, you know, outside of the realm of B2B classic, let's get you to download an ebook style landing page. A lot of landing pages out there, you know, in retail world mm -hmm. can be complex. There's sure. a lot of things going on. So how trying do you, to do multiple things, right? So how do you focus customers in on trying to get them to complete the action that you want them to complete 
without necessarily removing everything from your site <laughs> and just having whatever it is on there. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to have them white shoes. shoes. Right, exactly. It's okay to have some other shoes, but you want right. to leave with your white shoes. So an e-commerce page is actually a pretty good example of something that could be, you know, you have a lot of different competing call to actions, I guess mm-hmm. you could say, you know, navigations, things like that. How do you design a page that um, gets people to click that add to cart button on your white shoes page. So. All right. I think that those are some good landing page mistakes that maybe we need to think about for this week and really kind of assess where we're at with our landing page. I can't really emphasize continuity enough. So many people fail at that. And I think that a lot of companies leave dollars on the table by not having that simple continuity. And maybe it's an issue where you've kind of bitten off too much to manage. I think especially in the PPC world, maybe you need to scale things back and make it a little bit more simple on your ad construction standpoint to make sure that your website can stay congruent with your ad efforts. Maybe you've gone too crazy. It's really easy to write an AdWords ad or whatever banner platform or whatever you're using, but have you kind of spiraled out of control where your website can't keep up with all your advertising efforts and create that continuity between the experiences. Maybe you need to scale some of that back or just have better communication or assess. Maybe we need to have an easier way to construct our pages so we can churn things out that always match up. So continuity, clear calls to action. What's your visual hierarchy on your page? Think about those things this week. So next topic we wanted to chat about, because I think a lot of people maybe don't think this through all the way. But we wanted to mention about website features on mobile. I was reading an article on e-consultancy, and the article, the crux of it was this company, M&S, where a customer that was writing for e-consultancy was talking about that they were using their mobile phone to make a purchase. And something that happened during the visit was they could not remember their password. So they went through the forgotten password steps and when they received the email to reset their password and they clicked it on their mobile phone because that's what they were using, that feature actually did not work on the mobile site altogether. So it would throw them an error page. They'd have to get on the main website to go and try to find it. And then the process was so janky on a mobile device that they eventually closed out. And even still, I think there was a point where because you were on a mobile device and the automatic detection of the website, it Mm. would throw you into a loop to where you could never actually complete it is what they found out later on as well. So what that kind of brought up in, in both of us is taking the time to audit your processes and understand, are there certain aspects of the site that are very important to the sale that if someone is accessing it with different devices, that everything actually works and is actually a, a positive experience. It's okay if it's a little bit more difficult, but it's not so rage-inducing that I'm going somewhere else or not going to do it right now. Yeah, so that old-school method of you know redirecting all mobile users off to a separate website, I mean, that thing was headache-inducing for years because every website did that, mm-hmm. and then you'd it'd be such a limited mobile version of the website that you had to find the way to get over to the full version. Sometimes that didn't even work. It kept redirecting you back and forth, kind of like what they ran into on that website. I think it's a, it's an interesting problem. And I think, I mean, obviously a lot of it is solved with having a responsive website that just automatically displays things for mobile phones and you don't have to redirect people over, remove features and things like that for mobile, mobile users. But I remember 
and this may have actually been on an episode of the podcast that we didn't actually publish live because this is way back in the day. We're on what number twenty six now. I, I think so. this may have been like point one or uh, something like that, uh-huh. where I talked about Home Depot and trying to use their website and the fact that I couldn't search the way that I wanted to, the way that I was used to searching on their main website on my desktop. And I got so frustrated with it and it kept bugging me to try to get their app and all this stuff. And I realized that that's a common thing on a lot of websites. It's like, uh, we'll just give up on making a mobile usable website, just Mm -hmm. get our app, which to me is just, I don't need the Home Depot app. I just need to search, right? It's such a frustrating thing for me when I try to go to a website and complete what I assume would be an easy feature and then they're trying to force me over into an app. Right, especially since you've actually done it on the on the website in the past, you come to expect certain features to be there. You know, right. I think that you brought up a good point. I think that there sometimes is a desire to get people to install an app, but at the end of the day, I'm a customer. I'm here and now. I'm on your site, and I think it behooves a lot of companies to build an experience that works well on mobile. Because when I leave a website to go install an app and and start interacting with whether it be the Play Store or iTunes. There's a lot of variables in there that can easily get me distracted away from what my true intention for that visit was. You know, maybe I see that there's an update for plants versus zombies. Ooh, okay, well, (laughs) I want to play that for like 15 minutes. Or there's a lot of variables that come into play at that point. And you're already kind of working with limited time potentially on a mobile device. And I think that sometimes, you know, I, I know it, Developing for an app sometimes can make it easier because it's a much more controlled ecosystem. But I think that there can be some loss when you're trying to always direct someone over to that. And it almost seems like, like you said, you're almost giving up. It's like, we didn't really take the effort to have a good mobile site. Hopefully you're not so pissed off at us that you will still get the app and continue with us. But then I've even gone through that process, went and gotten the app. And some companies don't even take the time of, okay, so you've installed the app. You're not even resuming my session. So right. I've installed this app. Now I'm, I'm back at the homepage. And so I'm starting all over again. Well, not only that, your app actually isn't even as good as the mobile site that I was just on. <laughs> I mean, that is something True. I've seen before too. True. You know, I understand building an app. You can yeah. build in a lot more advanced features, swipes, things like that. I mean, you can do a lot more. A complicated search, like an advanced search for, say, example, on Home Depot can be done a lot more easily in the confines of an app. You can do a lot more fancy stuff in there. I understand that. At the same time, though, a lot of these things can be done with a mobile website, given the time, take the effort. If you're going to take the effort to build an app, take the time and effort to make a mobile website that actually works. It's mm-hmm. it's not, I mean, with responsive web out there right now, with the way that iPhones and, and everybody's Android phone can handle complex websites with JavaScript and all that stuff. So it's not, okay. it's definitely something that people need to be paying attention to. Yeah, so take the time this week, audit. If you have a mobile website or just your website in general, use it with tablets, some different phones, and look for ways to essentially break the system. Is there things like forgotten a password that are so just rage-inducing that you can't expect other people to, to actually make it through those processes? Make sure that you don't have breaks in the system. And there are some tools out there that you might want to look to invest in that might help auto-detect some of that stuff, whether that's some of the more sophisticated technologies like Clicktail or Tea Leaf, 
that actually captures people's sessions based on devices and can alert you to spikes or errors. Those might be something that you want to look into as well. But take the time this week and make sure that, you know, regardless of device, my website is working for the features. At least, you know, for in this instance, it was forgot a password. That's critical to the sale. At least right. take the time to make sure that for whatever my main goals are, whether that's signing up for a lead, purchasing, that on a mobile device or a tablet, that this is working well. So, Absolutely. So to close this episode, number 26, out, I wanted to talk a little bit about a study I found online that talked about, so they had surveyed some users of websites and asked them, you know, how do they feel about certain ad placements? Uh, which ones did they find most obtrusive and annoying? And which ones were they more okay with? Things like that. And I wanted to discuss some of those figures. I think some of them are contradictory and I disagree wholeheartedly with a few of them at the same time. So let's run through some of these. So obviously at the top of the list, 55% of people hate those flash takeover ads. Ooh, That's those overlays. One. Those look good. <laughs> <laughs> I click on those on accident more often than anything. You know, it's funny you say that. I was uh, on a Android site today, and I was on a tablet, and I, I I was trying so hard to close out of the ad, and I kept clicking it, and I was I thought to myself, I wonder how much this screws up the stats of yeah. those ad buys. I mean, I wonder how many marketing folks think, wow, I get a lot more clicks on these. These work really well, which... Maybe they do, maybe they don't, but, and at least in my experience, I probably 50% accidentally click those ads as I'm trying to close it, right. and then I just close that tab anyway. Or I click off screen to scroll. That's mm-hmm. how I activate my scroll wheel, you know, so I always accidentally click on those, but then back up before your page ever even gets load. a chance to even load. Mm-hmm. So that was number one, which was far and away the most annoying. I mean, that makes sense to me. Sure. So next on the list was 10.4% right banner placement. Which, to me, that's like, uh, that's the bottom of the list. I don't mm. even ever look in the right-hand column. <laughs> Nav, I mean, that's where yeah. banners go. Right. I don't look this there. Since 97, this is yeah. where banners go. All right, so 9% pre-roll ads. Yeah, those are super annoying on YouTube, but I'm not going anywhere because of them. Sure. I'll wait them out. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, it's a race to hit skip as soon as it <laughs> activates. Yeah. 8.5% <laughs> top banner placement, which... Again, similar to right banners, I don't even look at those anymore. Yeah, did they uh, break that down with sizing at all? No, or was they it did just not. like location? Okay. At least not what I, what I read. Mm. All right. And then finally on the list of most obtrusive, 7.1% middle of the page. So those little mm. article break ones. Right, the article breaks. With the big ad in there. Did they talk about, it's not very common, but have you seen some of the expanding ones where if you roll over, it'll like take over a portion of the screen or it'll actually dynamically grow on the page? Yeah, I have seen those. I wonder if they tackled that at all. It doesn't seem like it from the no, stats. No, I, they didn't talk about that. But that but... sometimes can be annoying because you don't actually mean to interact with the ad. And then all of a sudden, it'll. some of them like play sound and whatnot. So <laughs> How really is that annoying. not on the top of the list? <laughs> Auto play sound oh, or my video. Gosh, regardless of what site it is, I'm just going to close out the tab immediately. <laughs> yeah. Or if I can find the tab. <laughs> right. That's the it's worst. Chrome. Yeah. So they also asked them which ones are least obtrusive, which you would think would just be the opposite of that mm-hmm. previous no, list. People maybe are in theory. I mean, I guess that doesn't necessarily have to match up. So 50% of people said end of content ads. Get to the bottom of the article you're reading. There's an ad there. Ah, whatever. <laughs> I don't care about that. 
Right. Which I guess makes sense. But at the same time, those are also the ads that get like the most interaction, I think, on mm-hmm. a lot of landing pages. I know oh, yeah. for like AdWords, obviously it's the top ads that perform the best, but the bottom ads are right beneath those. Oh, those right hand mm-hmm. ones, pff, people don't look at those. <laughs> That's where if you have money to blow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Next, um, 22% right side. Um, people. Make up your mind. Early. <laughs> exactly. So there's that contradictory earlier 10.4% said that's the most annoying. Yeah, I mean, I think probably just depends a lot on the question wording that they're doing yeah, and, I mean, you know, if they expose them to any examples or whatnot. Get into all that mess, but yeah. And then the same number, 22%, found top banner ads the least intrusive, which I agree with. I mean, yeah. I, again, like I said, I don't even look at those things. Obviously, people care about banner placements, and a lot of people have some strong opinions. I think that keep in mind... Some of those stats, as Rob pointed out, there might be a little bit of contradictory there. But another thing you can take away for this week is audit your banner placements and looking at their ear creatives. Are they potentially obtrusive to the visit, whether that's in design? I mean, you're trying to grab people's attention. So there's a there's a fine balance between that and potentially annoying people and causing some negative PR for your brand, potentially not accomplishing the goals that you have out there. So we're going to tweet out the link at some interesting research. Read over it really carefully. And I think that's the key with a lot of these studies is a lot of people take some strong takeaways, but if you actually think about what they're measuring, what they're asking, you can come up with actually some different conclusions. So think about that as you, as you read the studies. But this has been episode number 26 of the Beard Marketers. This is Rob and Corey. If you have any comments or topics you'd like us to cover, give us a call 904-270-9603. Stressed out about something? Don't know where to start? Your boss is yelling at you? Give us a call. Between Rob and I, we have a lot of experience in the industry and we could probably help you out and we'll feature it on an upcoming episode. But until then, this has been Rob and Corey, the Beard Marketers, and we'll see you next week.